the one, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. We're the Bearded Marketers. I'm Rob. And I'm Corey. Drop new episodes every Monday morning at thebeardedmarketers.com slash podcast. You can also catch them on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. This is episode number 63. I'm drinking a Balvenie 12 to get things started. What are you doing? I'm following your suggestion and drinking some Talisker 10. Pretty tasty. A little yeah. peaty, but yeah, Definitely tasty. a good peat smoky flavor to it. All right, it's it's been a long day. Let's jump right into the topics and just get into it. First and foremost, rookie mistakes. How not to embarrass yourself when you're doing some email marketing. Let's avoid those. I'm gonna roll into some marketing optimization from Rob. What are some what are the three top takeaways that you need to learn from some of the top performers out there and maybe implement yourself? And then closing it out, it wouldn't be an episode. We didn't talk about our friends at Google, what's going on there. Our lives wouldn't be complete if we didn't talk about them. That's true. So kicking things off, rookie mistakes. I feel like there's a Sandlot reference in there, but (laughs) how do we not get caught up on maybe the easier mistakes to avoid in email marketing? This is a list from our friends over at MailChimp who we use for the Bearded Marketers and highly recommend. Basically, they just ran down. A lot of new people are coming at email marketing, maybe signing up for free accounts at MailChimp and Here are some of the common things that have happened to people, common mistakes people make, because there can be some massive repercussions. So it's a good idea to sort of, if you're new to email marketing, run down this list, or even if you've been around it for a while, you know, pay attention to some of these things. Because, I mean, I guess you can't actually get sued. I've never heard of anyone having this happen to them. I've heard of um, some fines from FTC. All right. So number one on this list, not having permission. I think this is an obvious one, but I, Actually, I liked... probably not so obvious for some <laughs> okay, people. Let's, let's not assume because yeah. we run into this a lot. I wanted to mention this one because I like their example of if your initial reaction to the statement of not having permission was, but what if, <laughs> then they go on to say, then stop what you're doing because you most likely do not have permission. So I thought that was a good succinct way of putting that whole sure. thing. So I won't really go any more into that. Number two on their list, The difference between transactional emails and marketing emails. Mm. So this means, let's say someone purchases something from your e-commerce store. You can send them a transactional email, be it a receipt or a shipping update or something like that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they've opted into your marketing emails that you're now going to send them every other day or every week or whatever it is and they can't get off the list. There are differences between those two things. And if you're going to automatically put people into your marketing lists, you need to sort of have some sort of opt-in method where you try to do Mm -hmm. that. Number three, being in a rush. I've done this myself, unfortunately, with, <gasps> with very with very large campaign sends. Rookie stuff like dear name and forgetting to put in the you know the, the dynamic. dynamic thing. But there's so many different things that you need to check on an email campaign. Unlike so many other things we do with internet marketing, once you hit send, it can't be pulled back, it can't there's be undone, no, uh, right? Whoops. It's gone, <laughs> right? If I mean if you typo something in a paid search ad, you can go on and edit it. Not a big deal. If you mess up a headline on your page, you can fix it. But once you hit send, it's gone, it's done. If you send it to the wrong list, that could be huge trouble. The wrong template with it or whatever, the wrong segment, wrong timing, whatever it is. I think it's always a good idea at the end before you're about to send a campaign, maybe step back, pause everything, save everything, save where you are, take a 15 minute break, then come back and take a fresh look at it again, just to make sure everything's on the up and up. And then hit that send or schedule button. I did want to go back to the first two that you said, because I, I, I feel like some people would look at those and go, well, what's the big deal? You know, yeah. uh, you know, I'm sending them marketing emails. Or maybe some people feel like they've taken some, 
certain shady ways to inform users that they might be sending them emails. Maybe it's, you know, terms of service on the back part of the page where you're asking people for their email or whatever. The problem that gets presented is you have an email reputation that you need to manage as a business. And you need to weigh that when people unsubscribe, that can greatly affect the deliverability of your emails down the road and to your greater audience. So sometimes being greedy with emails can have some very hefty costs to them. Yeah. And you have to understand that sometimes less is more to reach your target audience, but also to not negatively impact your brand. If you're known as someone that just spams everyone with emails when they're not really relevant or that I was anticipating, that can have some not only some consequences on social channels and just word of mouth, but if people are unsubscribing or marking you as spam, that can have some very disastrous effects that can be hard to come back from from the long term. So some of these things people might think, well, that's not really that big of a deal. It can be a really big deal if you don't pay attention to some of these things. That's that's actually in the same vein as being in a rush and not checking everything. Similar to what you were just saying, let's say I set up an email send and I sent to the wrong segment on accident and I get a ton of unsubscribes. Right. Um, that was a costly mistake. Oh, sure. That's sort of in the same thing you were just talking about. So let's talk about the next one. Not understanding how spam filters work. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I mean, this one can be tough to sort of explain to people and there's a ton of misinformation out there and it can be a little difficult to really understand. But I think there are some decent rules of thumb that you can use to avoid getting in the spam folder across a lot of the different clients. So I'll just run through a few of these really quick. These are the examples that MailChimp gives. So going crazy with exclamation points is a <laughs> is a marker for a spam email. I'm just going to say these word for word. Using all caps because it's like yelling in an email, OMG. <laughs> That's uh, exactly how I would read that. <laughs> coding sloppy HTML. And the example they give here is usually from converting a Microsoft Word file to HTML, which what century are we in right now? No one should be doing that. Coloring fonts bright red or green. That's an interesting, interesting one. Using the word test in the subject line. I wouldn't have necessarily thought of that, actually. Yeah. Or creating an HTML Im- uh, an HTML email that's nothing but one big image with little or no text. Probably Which is, because of the email providers can't necessarily understand what that, what's, what's, what's in, in that. Yeah. What's interesting there is a lot of large retailers do, do not that. pay attention to that one. Right. But maybe for some of the smaller email senders out there, that's one to to pay attention to. I got two more here on the list that I want to talk about. Testing and programs. Now this just basically means, you know, when you have designed your email or written it all up, especially HTML ones, I mean, this is primarily what we're talking about here. It's important to send test sends to all the different platforms out there. Or if you can't do that, and you want to be even more legit, using a tool that's actually going to send it, it's going to open your email in a bunch of different clients and send you screenshots of it. So you can make sure that your email is displaying properly across everyone's setups. Web devs and designers are familiar with this practice. They have to do the same thing with websites across different browsers. Same concept applies. If you're writing a new email, you need to check it across all the different clients because some can do some crazy things. And sometimes those manipulations change over time. So just because Mm -hmm. you check a template once, don't assume that three months later that Hotmail or whoever is still opening and rendering out that email the same. Sometimes their standards change slightly, and that can mean a big thing for your templates. Also, I don't know if you're going to get into this, but mobile devices and tablets kind of bring in a whole other realm of things to be careful of and to think through as well. That's a whole new nightmare for web designers as well. Oh, yeah. Um, Every client on every different mobile phone uses things differently, and it's insane. 
Last one I'm going to talk about is ignoring campaign reports. It's important to make sure that after you do sends, you actually follow up and make sure, okay, did that go out as planned or did I get a massive unsubscribe for that? And if so, maybe I need to look into why that potentially was. Maybe I made a mistake and, you know, like my earlier example, sent to the wrong segment or had the wrong headline or whatever it was. Follow the trends of your your recent sends. And if something seems off, look into it and try to find out why. Because continuing to do whatever it is that you did wrong can only lead to more disaster. So those are some tips from MailChimp to avoid the rookie mistakes. Moving right along to top of funnel marketing, what really spurred this on was was another Rand Fishkin Whiteboard Friday. And in this video, he was talking about bringing it back to kind of marketing 101 like we had in college. Sorry, before you get too far into this, I, I just want to... Whack sure. Wow. <laughs> bring up some important things. I wouldn't say I'm some, a fashionista, but that shirt got right, red fish. Right, some it. trends I've noticed in Rand's style over the years. I've been following him for a very long time. His latest rig out is, is pretty interesting. <laughs> Rand, if you're listening out there, I love you, man. I love your stuff. We both love it. You're out there. You're really out there. It's really (laughs) hipster feeling. But uh, anyway, let's... (laughs) So what was actually in the video besides what it was looking like? Uh, It's definitely worth a watch. I think it's a unique take on a thought process that not many businesses really look at. And I think because it is difficult, which he admits in the video, in that... So he, he returned back to, like I mentioned, marketing classes that we had maybe back in college or high school where... You looked at the life cycle or the journey of the customer, and one is like awareness and researching options and making the decision. I won't get deep into the minutia there, but what he said is a lot of the competition is at where people have already been made aware of something, and now they're in the search for a solution. And a lot of people are quibbling over that last part of the funnel, and that's just supremely saturated if you want to do keyword optimization if you want to do paid search all those types of things that's where all your competitors live and it becomes very difficult and costly to kind of help rise yourself above your other competitors and he said that what we have to consider is how do we get ourselves and our name up to the awareness part and he talked about you know with moz they do a lot of education they do a lot of content generation Not only to go after maybe search engine optimization or whatever, but really to just introduce the concept in the industry to people might not even be related or even be thinking about it, but it is turning on that awareness. And now there is a brand affinity to that awareness where, again, your competitors might not necessarily live. I think one of the things that he covered, which goes into kind of a larger point, is when you go after things tactically like this and and again, kind of get away from the normal competitive nature of going after when people are looking at maybe it's conversionary optimization that's where i'm going to focus my efforts well now that's a costly endeavor so how do we get above that and one of the things that he said was it's challenging because oftentimes when you rise yourself up to that level it's hard to quantify your efforts you know now you are going beyond maybe looking at last click attribution or being able to really put roi behind these efforts and it's such a long tail set up now that a lot of companies don't want to do that because it's looked at as we're used to measuring a lot of things here online and doing marketing on these channels so to bridge into something now where it's we're going to be investing a lot of time and effort and hopefully things kind of trickle down is scary for some and they just don't Mm -hmm. want to take it on one of the things though i think that he pointed out rightly is if you do do that expect your conversion rates to fall and he gave moz as an example you know we have 
two or three million people that come to our site every month to check out our services or digest pages from us. Well, a very, very small percentage of those people actually pay us for a monthly service. And you should expect that. If you are going into the at the awareness level instead of at the researching competitors or choosing a solution, you should expect your conversion rates to fall because you're doing that education or that awareness. That's just a logical byproduct of those efforts. And I thought even more so than that, marketers need to be very careful with setting conversion rate targets. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially in the benchmark obsessed world that we live in of what do I need to be targeting for? What do I read? You know, it's 4%. That's what I need to be going after. I think what Rand was getting at is important that sometimes you have to look beyond the numbers and understand what are efforts actually doing and how does that influence some of the business metrics that we're paying attention to? There were two things I wanted to bring up again from what you just said. And the first one is that it's a similar trend to what's happened in the real business world, right? There's this massive focus on short-term gains and what can we do now to make money now. And nobody wants to invest in a massive content marketing strategy that is going to make us a big brand name three years from now. Not only is that hard to measure, it's impossible to know if that's going to work or I don't want to sit around and wait three years to find out. (laughs) Number two is just that, you know, and I know that we've mentioned this on a prior podcast, which is because we're from internet marketing and analytics and we, we know all of these things, I think so many people in this world get way too caught up in trying to measure everything and ROI everything and trying to figure out all the math on that. And you do miss out like this sort of video points to miss out on maybe sort of building a brand or some of those other efforts that really do matter, but you can't like tie those exact numbers to them or they don't hold up to your paid search you know, ROI numbers or whatever the heck it is that you're doing on the short term. But as soon as those things get turned off, you're done. As you mentioned, we expect immediacy from those results. Yeah. I'm investing into this brand, uh, much like I might throw money at AdWords. What's the results? In AdWords, I'm sitting around waiting for these conversions to roll in. Well, with some of these efforts, if you're really trying to build a brand and, and rise yourself above really the scrap fight that's happening at these lower levels, that you won't have that available to you. And you have to be willing to accept that. I think one of the examples he gave was pretty interesting in that he was looking at uh, a conference approach to him to come and speak over in Australia. He was considering it and he thought, as a real world example, I agreed to speak at this conference, but when I was there, I'm going to have some free time in Australia and I want to see what's going on. And so I'm now having to research some tourism options and things like that. And he said, only one event that I can ever recall to actually prepared some of that information for me ahead of time. And it was actually a ski resort doing it for a conference. And he thought that was a really smart way to, again, I might have even been thinking about skiing, but now they've marketed with this conference. They've raised some awareness with me. They've also provided me some value as well. And so it's thinking about those smart ways to market your product to, again, raise that awareness and bring your brand into the thought process of people that might not even be necessarily hunting for what you have to give, but you're planting that seed. So as marketers, this is a really tough topic for us to tackle and really think about. But Rand does have some good points in here. There, There are some dreamer points as well that I don't know necessarily translate to everyone, but definitely worth a watch and maybe take some time this week to think, you know, how can I get higher up in this user journey on the web. And I think that your brand might pay some serious dividends in the future. Moving right along, marketing optimization 
Rob, what is the secret formula? This is some data, you know, you were knocking on benchmarks. I'm going to pull up a benchmark yes. for you guys. Got some <laughs> benchmark stats here, which I think I've done maybe last episode too. So I will not do this again for okay. a while, but I do love me some stats. So this is, this is from Adobe's digital optimization survey. They found the top 20% of performers in online optimization for their marketing campaigns and compared those to the bottom 80% to figure out what are these top performers doing that's different than all of these other people. I think I'm going to cover two or three of these. I think there's five in here, but I'm not really going to pay attention to all of them. This was reported on eConsultancy.com on their blog. So the first one that I wanted to talk about was, and this is pretty straightforward and kind of makes sense, but I still wanted to bring it up. And that is, they asked the question of which statement best describes your organization's current approach to testing. The top one was, my company has adopted testing as a form of decision making. The least involved one was, testing is not a priority in my company yet. So obviously, there were two times as many people in the bottom 80% who chose testing is not a priority in my company yet. Obviously, if you're not very good at it, it's not a priority in your company. So that was a very service level one. Let's get into a couple more that maybe I can actually do something with. What percentage of your total marketing budget is allocated to optimization activities? Now, I think the recent benchmark we talked about on one of the previous podcasts pointed to there is definitely an increase towards optimization activities. So let's look at the breakdown, the percentage of people's budgets across the different spectrum of 5%, 5 to 10%, 11 to 15, up to about 25%. Outside of less than 5%, they were all virtually equal across the Mm. top and bottom performers. But at less than 5% of my marketing budget, the bottom 80% said 44%, you know, agreed to that statement, while only 31% of the top performers said that. But on all the other metrics, it was virtually the same. Mm. So it's the difference between 5% and 5 to 10%. There's a massive jump there. The last one I'm going to mention is, which customer experience measurement and optimization tactics do you currently use? This one's kind of interesting here. So of the top 20%, 44% said they used manual test implementation and analysis. So not relying on tools, like mm-hmm. actually hard coding stuff in and pulling out Excel and like running numbers. Wow. 64% of the bottom 80% did that. So okay. a lot more people who are on the bottom 80% of not very good at this are using the manual test implementation and analysis part of this. I imagine that's probably some sequential testing. I would imagine so. Everything else was actually pretty close. Vendor managed process, 18% of the top performers used that method. Bottom 80%, uh, 10% of them used vendor managed. Um, Double at most? Right. What I almost expected most people to be doing was using automated programs to determine significance and winners and Mm -hmm. to run the tests. Only 15% of the top performers use that method and 11% of the underperformers use that method. You think so, part of that is just relinquishing control and feeling I, and being concerned about that? I, maybe. I don't know. Or maybe they're just, the tools are too expensive or they, we, maybe the industry hasn't quite gotten there yet. I mm-hmm. mean, because I think I was so surprised that nearly 50% of both are using manual test implementation and analysis. I thought we were way beyond that at this point. So anyway, some interesting takeaways on what the good people at optimization are doing versus the underperformers. So let's summarize that. So the top performers are stating that testing is a priority in their company. To make decisions. Yes. They're spending a lot more on it and they are using automated tools more often to run tests. So that's your sort of basic breakdown of all of those crazy well, the key stats to success. Questions. You know, stepping back is obvious if you think about it, but these are stats that sort of support what makes maybe you should have thought of and made sense anyway. What else are we covering? Actually, those are our main topics. Now we're just on a Google corner now. Yeah, gonna... we have some big things in the Google corners yeah. to, to cover. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is PLAs. If you're in that space, Google has rolled out a new way to run campaigns. 
and it's called Google Shopping Campaigns. What they've done with this is really answer the gripes that a lot of people had for running PLAs. Now, if you don't know what PLAs are, basically if you did a search for like, so okay. what, do, what do they stand for? Product listing ads. If you were to do a search at Google for something like Manziel jerseys or, or whoever, those search results that come back as actual products, those are PLAs. They are really great. To put some numbers behind that, Internet Retailer, which is a data aggregator, PLA click-through rates are 47% higher than ordinary text ads Boom. on Google properties in your face. And just to tell you the competitive landscape, PLA spending accounted for more than 20% of Google paid search clicks. Again, this is a big industry. Some of the gripes around this, though, has been really poor reporting in the past. It's really hard to look at some of the user information on this traffic, attributions of different campaigns within AdWords. Also, it was really tough to look at competitive information. So within AdWords, they've gotten better and better at this to run, you know, maybe what is my share of search if I bid on certain things. All of these really have been solved with this new campaign set Google Shopping campaign. So if you run PLAs, check it out. The initial feedback from a lot of agencies has been that their cost per clicks have gone down quite a bit. Plus, they get all this extra reporting so they're able to better optimize their campaign. So take that into account. It has been rolled out to everyone, but as with most things that are new with Google, a lot of people don't actually know about it yet. So as a competitive advantage, go ahead, try it out. You might beat a lot of your competitors to market and be able to reap the benefits for quite a while. The last thing I'm going to cover, I think Apple's done this before in the past and they rolled it back. But they have dropped Google as their spotlight provider in iOS and Mac in their upcoming release. And they're going to roll with Bing. Good luck with that. <laughs> Does anyone use that? I guess that's what D Bing's trying to solve for. <laughs> I mean, I don't think anyone searches the web through their spotlight search. I don't, maybe. I just pull up Chrome and type something <laughs> in, but maybe I'm different. But we'll see how that plays out. I mean, I think Google and Apple have obviously had a tumultuous uh, relationship in the past. I mean, given they have competing mobile OSs and, and things like that. But we'll see kind of how that plays out for Google. I mean, Apple obviously has a huge product share of the market. So that's definitely going to impact them in one way or another. But we'll see if they actually stick to their guns. Because I remember for a while, they tried to get away from Google Maps and they rolled out their own maps out and then everyone protested and screamed and they had to go back and allow Google Maps back into the process. Yeah. So I wonder, uh, yeah. I wonder if this is going to be very similar. Well, again, I don't know how many people actually use that. We'll I, I, wonder, I wonder how much Bing paid for that. I don't know. To be the, the main provider. Uh, probably an IOU. <laughs> <laughs> that's all they that's, have at this point. <laughs> that's going to do it for us on episode number 63. Thank you so much for your time. We enjoyed ourselves. We love you all. We oh, love you all. absolutely. If you enjoyed yourself, Leave us a rating on iTunes. It helps greatly. Share with a friend, a colleague, maybe even a lover. If you have an idea for the show, maybe you're struggling with something, the boss is yelling at you, or you're just interested on what we'd have to say about it, you can give us a call, 904-270-9603. Rob waits day and night by the phone, yep. waiting your calls. We use all user <laughs> suggestions. We actually do, and typically we get to it the very next episode. Or you can contact us on the site at beardmarketers.com. Thanks again so much for your time, and we'll see you next week. Gia. Yeah.